Great. Well, uh, it's very good to be with you today and a privilege to come and be invited to speak at this fantastic conference. I really enjoyed this morning and uh, looking forward to the rest of this afternoon as well. Can you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2? Um, and uh, it'd be good to build on actually what Dr. Carson was saying about the Old Testament prophets. And I wanted to read from chapter 2 of Jeremiah. Um, as Pastor Carson was saying, these prophets speak in a way that's relevant to us today. They spoke at that time to Judah and Israel, in this case Judah, and um, they spoke to that nation. But just listen to these words as I read them and uh, see how relevant you think they are to this nation today. So let's read from verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 2. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when I wentest after me in the wilderness and a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord. The first fruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend, evil shall come upon them, says the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the... Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through where no man dwelt. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when he entered... You defiled my land, and you made mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the Lord knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. Hath a nation changed their gods? Says in verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods? And if you think of Britain, you think of how clearly and strongly Britain identified as a Christian nation and was a Christian nation and had Christian laws and laws based on the Bible. And people spoke openly about wanting to follow God and do what God said in Parliament and in other places. What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they're gone from me, verse 5. Even the pastors transgressed against me and prophesied by false prophets, verse 8. We are a nation, sadly, that has changed its gods and moved away from God over the last several years. Just in the last few weeks, we came to the end of the Queen's reign. She started in 1952, finished in 1920, since 2022. Um, back in 1953, the Queen's coronation service took place. And it's very interesting to remind ourselves what was said in that coronation service and how openly the gospel was proclaimed and the truth of Christianity was proclaimed. So I'll just read to you some of what was said in that service. 70 years ago, Archbishop said, Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom, the Protestant reformed religion established by law. Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship 
discipline and government thereof as by law established in England? And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England and to the churches there committed to their charge all such rights and privileges as by law do or shall appertain to them or any of them? And the Queen said, all this I promise to do. And later in the service, the Queen's presented with the Bible. And it says in the order of service, when the Queen is again seated, the Archbishop will go to her chair and from the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, receiving the Bible from the Dean of Westminster, shall bring it to the Queen and present it to her, the Archbishop saying these words, Our gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole of life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. And the moderator shall continue. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. And then the Queen shall deliver the Bible back to the moderator, who shall bring it to the Dean of Westminster to be reverently placed upon the altar. This done, the Archbishop shall return to the altar. Notice how openly and, and plainly it is spoken about the laws of God. Notice how it said, this Bible, the Bible is the most valuable thing in the world. Right? You've got the crown jewels there. Right? You've got all the symbols of empire. You've got all of the scepter and all these other things. The most valuable thing in the world is what? It's the Bible. That's the most valuable thing. Remember that, it says in the service. And it said to all the world who was listening or watching at the time. And the gospel and the laws of God. And be mindful of it as a rule of the whole of life. This was obviously written by Christians, wasn't it? And believed by Christians. For centuries it's been so now, the question is, what happens in the next coronation service? Right? Next year, we have another coronation service. Is it going to be like that? Are they going to say those words? And if they say them, are they actually going to believe them? Right? Are they going to mean it? Right? It'll be really interesting to see. But the point is that that shows where we've come from as a nation. That was how the nation was founded. If you set up these words were deliberately put in that coronation service, century, century, generation, generation, generation. The most valuable thing is the Bible. Repeat it. The most valuable thing is the Bible. And we must preserve the gospel. We must preserve God. And yet, we've turned away from that, have we not, in the last generation. Not to blame the Queen for this, but there has been a cultural revolution in the 70 years since the Queen came to the throne. In 1952, abortion was illegal. Today, as we've heard, 850 a day, just reached 10 million babies have been killed in this country since abortion was legalised in 1967 and it remains legal up to 24 weeks, even right up to birth for minor disabilities like a cleft lip or a cleft palate. And we've just legalised in the last year pills by post DIY at home abortions. 1952, 4.8% of babies were born outside marriage. Today, 46% of babies are born outside marriage. 
What's an indictment? What's a, you know, how much less stable the environment is for all those babies that are born outside marriage than it is if they're born inside marriage? In 1952, there were nearly 350,000 marriages and the population is about 50 million people. Today, only 240,000 marriages with 16 million more people in the population. Marriage is in decline. 1952, even with that higher number of marriages, there were 33,000 divorces per year. Today, there are about 120,000 divorces per year. And we have just legalised no-fault divorce, where one partner can unilaterally say to the other, this marriage is ending, I impose divorce on you, I impose the breakdown on the family for no reason whatsoever and no penalty whatsoever. We've made it easier than ever to break up the family. This has been a devastating revolution, a bloody revolution when you think about the 10 million babies and also think about so many people suffering from the decline in Christian values, from family breakdown, from the lack of moral values, from the lack of morality generally, and all that has happened in the last 70 years. We've heard a bit about abortion today, but it's worth remembering in this context one of our clients in the last year, Dr. Dermot Kearney, who was offering abortion pill reversal treatment for women who regretted taking the first abortion pill. We know because we've done um, mystery client surveys that you can phone up, a woman can phone up and ask for an abortion pill and they'll give the pills out without any checking of whether the person's uh, registered on the NHS, without checking their doctor's surgery, um, without even being able to check whether the woman is pregnant or not. And the reasons given can be as silly as, I want to look good on the beach. And they'll still send the pills out. So, so a woman phones because she's feeling desperate, unplanned pregnancy, and the pills arrive by post shortly afterwards. And the women quite often sit on those pills for some days or even weeks while they ponder, is this really what I want to do? Because it's a big thing, right? And then maybe they're coerced, Maybe they feel so desperate and they take the first pill. And in many cases, having done that, they immediately feel huge regret. Oh no, what have I done? What have I done? And they look and they search online. How can I reverse this? How can I reverse what's happened here? And they would find, quite often, Dr. Dermot Kearney and get in contact with him. And he would say to them, I can give you a treatment. It consists of a high dose of progesterone which has a much higher chance of your baby surviving than not taking this. It's not perfect, it doesn't always succeed, but it has a much higher chance of doing nothing. And he would give them this treatment, and um, many, many women have had healthy babies born as a result of that, who would not have had that if they weren't had that. Activists complained about what he was doing, said he shouldn't be allowed to do this. And he was actually banned by the Medical Council from offering this service to desperate women. He is thought to have been the first ever case where a medical doctor was prohibited from a life-saving treatment, from prescribing a life-saving treatment. With our help from Chris Concern, he was finally cleared of any wrongdoing 
and we'll be able to start offering this service again. But let's remember, he nearly lost his job for helping save lives, ultimately. Shocking situation. If we go from abortion to euthanasia, the end of life, beginning of life to the end of life, today, fortunately, euthanasia remains illegal in this country. Although there have been 10 attempts in the last 10, 15 years or so to change the law in Parliament, every time it's been rebuffed because people have recognised that this would be a slippery slope and a dangerous thing to do. There have also been several high-profile attempts to change the law through the courts, but each time the court has said we have to let Parliament change the law, not the courts, as they should. People are, however, allowed to travel abroad for assisted suicide. And do you remember during the lockdown, when we were told, stay home to save lives, stay home to save lives, There was an exception made by then Health Secretary Matt Hancock. If you really want to travel abroad for assisted dying, you're allowed to leave your home. He made a special exception to kill yourself. (laughs) Crazy when we're trying to save home to save lives. As I mentioned, just coming on to the family now, during lockdown, government found time to prioritise a new law, unilateral divorce. One partner can unilaterally impose divorce on the other with all of the consequences, loss of family home, childcare, etc., etc. Marriage is now easier to end than many phone contracts or or many tenancy agreements. In fact, it's the only contract in law where one one party to the contract can unilaterally break it without citing any reason and without paying any penalty. It devalues, it degrades marriage. It's no surprise that just... This week, the latest divorce stats were at a 10-year high. And we already degraded marriage by legalising so-called same-sex marriages some seven or eight years ago. The attack on family is most prevalent in our schools. Children are targeted for indoctrination about alternative models of the family. Books for very young or even preschool children have stories like King and King, And Tango makes three. Heather has two mummies. Asher's mums. My princess boy. Which is a story about a boy who wants to identify as a girl and who cross-dresses. It is propaganda for very young children for transgenderism. Five years ago, Christian parents Nigel and Sally Rowe found that a six-year-old in their son's Church of England primary school was allowed to identify as a girl whenever he chose to, and dress as a girl. And all the pupils were told, you have to call him, her, on the days, which wasn't every day, when he comes in dressed as a girl. And you have to use his adopted female name. Understandably, their son was disturbed by this and distressed by it. You You can imagine what he was thinking, might I turn into a girl tomorrow? It's very disturbing for children. So the parents complained to the school and said, surely this is not what you should be doing. Surely you shouldn't be just allowing a boy to dress and identify as a girl, let alone telling children to effectively lie about the gender of their fellow pupils. The school disagreed with the parents and said that their sons would be deemed transphobic if they did not use adopted pronouns or names. Not giving up, they complained to the local Church of England diocese. It's a Church of England school, if you remember. They thought at least the Church of England will say, yes, you can't change your gender. 
But no, the Church of England supported the school and said that they were entirely right uh, to allow this six-year-old child to change gender at will. Finally, they decided to withdraw their children from the school because they didn't think, want them to be indoctrinated in this way. And I'm pleased to say that the children thrived and have done much well, much better, and are much happier with homeschooling than they were in that school. Not giving up, though, because they remained concerned about the other children in the school, they then asked the Department of Education to intervene with this school and provide and and affirm that children should not be allowed, young children should not be allowed to change gender. And they provided substantial evidence to the Department of Education, affirming that, uh, showing that affirming acquired genders is harmful for children. The Department of Education refused to intervene, so with our help, they pursued a judicial review of that decision. A High Court judge gave permission for judicial review to proceed earlier this year. And just as it was going to go to court, the Department of Education decided to settle the case rather than see it go to court. As a result of their persistence, the government has now promised to revise its guidance and launch a public consultation on draft guidance for schools on transgenderism this autumn. What a fantastic victory for them. The government has also agreed to pay them £22,000 in costs for what they've done. So five years later, after they first complained, they've actually got the government to change its position and change what the guidance would be for schools. In a speech in August, then Attorney General Suella Braveman said, no child should be made to fear punishment or disadvantage for refusing to adopt a preferred pronoun for a gender-questioning child. That's exactly what Nigel and Sally Rowe were asking for. That's now the legal opinion of the government, and I hope that that is what will come through in the guidance, and we will start to see children protected from transgenderism in schools. The battle in schools is very fierce. Maths teacher Joshua Sutcliffe lost his job for misgendering a child. All he did was he said, well done, girls, to a bunch of girls who'd done well. One of the girls later complained, but I want to be known as a boy. So he lost his job for that. School pastoral assistant Christy Higgs posted on Facebook concerns about sex education in her son's primary school, a different school. The concerns that she shared were concerns that any Christian would share, and in fact, one of them was a petition that 100,000 people signed. Nevertheless, someone anonymously complained to the school where she works, and she was dismissed for gross misconduct. What did she do? She just raised concerns about the sexualization of young children. This case is still being pursued through the courts. In another case, Pastor Keith Waters worked as a caretaker at his local primary school in order to support his work as pastor of a local church. He tweeted that Pride Month events are contrary to Christian faith and morals and are especially harmful for children. Some local people saw his tweets and objected to them. He received death threats, a visit to arrange his funeral and lots of harassment in the local community. They also complained to his school where he worked and he lost his job for that tweet. Earlier this year, I'm pleased to say that the court ruled that he had been unfairly discriminated against. The ruling now says that the school was wrong to sack him and that therefore protects Christians who express their views in a private capacity on social media, as he did. A few years ago, we had the case of Felix Nagole, who was, who was expelled from university. He was studying social work at Sheffield University and he was expelled from university. What had he done? 
He'd commented on Facebook in his own private capacity in support of biblical teaching on marriage and sexual ethics. Some other student anonymously complained to the university that he believes that marriage is between man and woman and that sexual activity is reserved for marriage. The university should have just said, fine, but they didn't. They investigated. They should have, having investigated, said, well, what's wrong with that? But they didn't. They concluded he should be expelled from the course for expressing that view. Traditional Christian ethics is all he said on Facebook. Remember the complaint was anonymous as well. There's no actual person who has been offended by this. We challenged the decision of this university in court. And in court, the university argued, no matter how politely or moderately expressed, his views should be a bar to the profession. In other words, you should not be allowed to be a social worker if you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what they argued in court. When one of the judges said, does that mean Mother Teresa will be banned from working in social work? They said, yes, if that's what she thinks and she says it. Fortunately, we had to take that to the Court of Appeal, which ruled that Felix should not have been expelled and required Sheffield University to allow him to complete his course. Four years later, he has now completed his course and is a qualified social worker. Once again, this ruling protects people who express biblical positions in their own capacity on social media as it should. But it's shocking that it ever happened that they thought that this should be a bar to a profession like social work. In another case in a school, Reverend Bernard Randall worked as a school chaplain in a Church of England school. Transgender promoting charity was invited into the school and incredibly in a staff meeting, they got staff to chant in this meeting, smash heteronormativity. Imagine the staff in a school chanting smash heteronormativity. Well, Bernard was uncomfortable with that, understandably, and he raised questions about it. He regularly preached at chapel services and responded to what pupils asked him to preach about on occasion. One pupil asked him, why, given they're a Christian school, do they have to accept all this LGBT stuff? He thought it's a good question and that he ought to address it in a chapel sermon one day. So he preached a sermon in chapel and what he said was, you do not have to accept LGBT ideology. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. You're free to disagree with it. The sermon was inoffensive and totally in line with Church of England teaching, indeed in line with British values of tolerance and free speech. Nevertheless, Bernard was disciplined by the school and ultimately lost his job for preaching a Church of England sermon as a Church of England minister in a Church of England chapel, in a Church of England act of worship, in a Church of England school. Far from supporting him, the Church of England actually described him as a safeguarding risk. For saying what? You should be free to disagree with LGBT ideology. That's what he said. He's a safeguarding risk. The school actually reported him to the government's anti-terrorism watchdog, Prevent for that, as if he's a security risk to the nation. The case was heard in court just a few weeks ago. It was in court for two weeks, and we await the verdict, which will probably come around about Christmas or after into next year. But it's extraordinary that anybody should think that a chaplain, a school chaplain, should lose his job for such a sermon. So the world of education is a key battleground for Christian freedoms in the UK. Then there's the world of healthcare. I've talked about abortion. 
Also in the world of healthcare, Dr. David Macareth is an accident emergency doctor with over 25 years experience. He went on a training course to be a health and disability assessor for the Department of Work and Pensions. He was told he must refer to patients by their chosen gender. Remember that biological sex affects healthcare. So Dr. McCarrath, who is a Christian, said in conscience he would not refer, if asked, by a six-foot bearded man to refer to them as madam. He would not do so if he was asked to do so in conscience. He believes that gender is genetic and biological. This case went to court and the original judgment said, belief in Genesis 1.27, lack of belief in, gen- in transgenderism and conscience objection to transgenderism in our judgment is incompatible with human dignity and conflicts with the fundamental rights of others. Notice what that is, right? Belief. Just the belief. Not even saying it, right? Do you believe Genesis 1.27? Because if you do, according to that judge, you have violated and conflicted with the fundamental rights of others. Just the belief, right? We're in the realms of thought crime now, right? Holding a belief that we're created male and female which is what Genesis 127 says. Holding the belief that we're in the image of God, which, by the way, is the foundation of the whole concept of human rights, is now a violation of rights, according to that judge. Now, we appealed that judgment, and that aspect of the judgment was overturned, because it is ridiculous. And the court ruled that biblical beliefs that do not affirm transgenderism are protected under the Equality Act. But it also ruled that Christians cannot express these beliefs in the workplace without fear of losing their jobs. So we are going to have to continue and appeal that ruling too. Mary Anua was a nurse working as an NHS theatre practitioner. She wore a small confirmation cross on a necklace that she had worn for over 40 years as a symbol of her Christian faith. Mary was told that her necklace was a health and safety risk and must not be visible but no good reason was provided, so where, why her cross was a risk, whereas other people were allowed to wear jewellery and other religious symbols. Furthermore, practitioners wore lanyards that were much bigger, much more prominent than Mary's little cross, and much more obviously a potential safety risk. Nevertheless, Mary was forced out of her job for refusing to remove her small necklace. We helped take her case to the Employment Tribunal, which ruled that she'd been directly discriminated against. The court accepted the cross is a symbol of Christianity, and in this important case now means that any employer will have to think twice before restricting wearing of crosses in the workplace. It also shows, however, the hostility to Christianity and Christian symbols in the workplace. Staying in healthcare, Dr Richard Scott works as a general practitioner doctor in Margate, He's very experienced. He's worked as a doctor for some 35 years. He always offers the appropriate medical care, but sometimes he also offers to pray for his patients. If the patients refuse, that's fine. But when patients accept prayer, he has seen some remarkable results and lives transformed. In fact, I did a YouTube video interview with him just yesterday, and if you want to hear some great testimonies and stories, watch that and listen to it or listen to it. Um, on podcast. Dr Scott has been a victim of a targeted campaign by secularists to stop him from sometimes, sometimes offering prayer. 
Complaints were first made some 10 years ago and he was cleared of any wrongdoing and he's been cleared in subsequent campaigns too. In the latest complaint ruling, which was agreed only on Monday this last week, lawyers from the NHS agreed that Dr Scott is free to offer prayer for patients providing he complies with general medical counsel and guidance, which he always does. This is an important victory then for Christian freedoms. It means that it's now clear in law that doctors and others can, as appropriate, offer prayer for their patients. And sometimes that's what any caring doctor should do or would do, especially when people are depressed, struggling mentally, whatever. You might give them the drugs, but you will say to them, have you ever thought about praying? Christians, therefore, should be bold and do that and talk about God and offer prayer on occasion in the workplace. We've heard quite a bit about street preachers this morning. I want to move on to free speech now in general. And we've heard passionate support of preaching on the streets the gospel, which is great, fantastic. Sadly, it's not unusual, again, as we've heard this morning, for complaints to be made against street preachers for things that they say, and street preachers being accused of being homophobic or transphobic or Islamophobic or some other phobia or something else. But, of course, there's no such offence in law. Free speech is protected in law. But police officers have quite regularly arrested street preachers and sometimes held them overnight before releasing them or occasionally charging them. Some of you know Pastor Sherwood, who was arrested, I think it was last year, um, by the police and held overnight. And eventually um, we got the charges dropped in his case. Some of you will have heard of Hatton Tash, who goes to Hyde Park Corner, Speaker's Corner, every Sunday, very bravely and boldly preaches to the Muslims there and, uh, and explains to them that you're not going to get salvation through Muhammad. Muhammad is a false prophet. You should follow Jesus. She has been stabbed um, in uh, Speaker's Corner and she's been arrested several times. The latest time she was arrested and held overnight and strip searched and had her glasses removed from her so she couldn't read the Bible. In every case where the police have actually tried bringing charges, like the case of the Bristol Fall, which was mentioned earlier this morning, we have managed to get charges dropped because our laws do protect freedom of speech. The real problem is that society does not believe that free speech is protected, and even the police don't believe it either. In some cases, we obtained a formal apology from the police and compensation for the preacher. We are working hard, and I hope and pray that the culture in the police and in society changes on this issue And we've been in conversation with senior police officers about it, saying you should not be arresting the person preaching. You should be arresting the person who assaults the preacher. That's what you should be doing. Not the preacher themselves. They're committing no (coughs) offence. Staying with free speech, in a recent case, Christian mayoral candidate Maureen Martin was sacked by her employer for expressing Christian beliefs on marriage as part of an election manifesto. She was dismissed for gross misconduct following three complaints. The case is believed the first of its kind to see a political candidate sacked by their employer for expressing Christian beliefs. Here's what the manifesto said, marriage. I pledge to cut through political correctness and simply state the truth that natural marriage between a man and a woman is the fundamental building block for a successful society and the safest environment for raising children. That statement that marriage is the fundamental building of sex society and the safety of for children was so offensive that she was sacked for saying that by for her employers. 
Rory will take legal action against her employer for discrimination, unfair dismissal and a breach of human rights, particularly irrespective given its political speech. We expect to win that case. It's been described as an attack on democracy and I very much hope to see her vindicated in court. But the point is that it's shocking that an employer would consider it justifiable to sack somebody for saying that marriage is good for society and good for children. During the COVID pandemic, the government forced churches to close. They allowed bicycle shops to open and off licenses to open because they are essential services, according to the government, but gathered worship of Almighty God was made <coughs> illegal. First time in centuries that Christian worship was criminalised in the UK. Chris Concern challenged this through judicial review of the decision. We, we, um, we issued letters... We took it and tried to take it to court. Every time, just before it was about to get the court, the government would open up the churches again and therefore it would be deemed like it's not a, not a case that's got any, anything in it anymore. But the Scottish government was stupid enough to keep churches closed long enough so the judicial review could proceed to court. And it went to court. And in court, Barrister Janice Scott opened the argument for the pastors of various churches saying this, my notice of argument makes no apology for starting with a statement, and that is, Jesus is Lord. Because that encapsulates the issue as far as the petitioners are concerned. The Scottish ministers presented these 27 church leaders and very many more ministers, church elders, and ordinary members of congregations with a deep crisis. As Christians, their primary obedience is to God and not to the state. And there's a fundamental obedience in regular communal public worship. That was what she said in court, and I'm pleased to say... We won that case. Scotland's closure of churches was ruled unlawful, a breach of both human rights and the Constitution, a very significant ruling for Christian freedoms. This means the government will find it very, very difficult to enforce the closure of churches in the UK ever again. Amen. I close with a pending threat on Christian freedoms, and that is the so-called legal ban of so-called conversion therapy. The government has consulted on banning conversion therapy and has promised to ban it. The response to the consultation is due out probably sometime this autumn. If conversion therapy, so-called, is banned, it would make it illegal to have a conversation with someone who wants to have a conversation about unwanted sexual attractions. In other words, it will make certain types of consensual conversations illegal, outlawed. It will also outlaw challenging the sexual identity of children. Campaigners want to outlaw prayer and pastoral ministry. Understandably, in reaction to the concerns about this, some 2,500 church leaders signed an open letter to the Prime Minister saying that if it comes to it, they will disobey the new law because their fundamental obedience is to God and not to a law that says you cannot talk to people about this or you cannot pray with people about this. Now, with the new Prime Minister, we hope and pray that this is not prioritised and nothing gets taken forward, but we will wait to see because the response to the consultation is due out. Our view is clear. No new laws are needed. Anything abusive in the name of conversion therapy is already illegal. Any new laws would criminalise certain types of conversations and be a major setback for Christian freedoms in the UK. Already, Christian charity... Core Issues Trust, which offers talking therapy for those who want to have th 
therapy, talking therapy, and support with unwanted sexual attractions has been targeted by LGBT activists who complained to Barclays Bank. Why do you find with banking services? Barclays Bank then summarily announced to them their account will be closed at short notice. This is a significant threat to Christian freedoms. It will be churches next. The banks will say, we can't have a bank account with you. If activists can get bank accounts closed for Christian charities, no church is safe. Corey's Trust has brought a legal case against Barclays Bank for discrimination. <coughs> case will be held, heard in court later this month after Barclays applied for the case to be struck off. We pray for success in this important case for Christian freedoms. I conclude with this. Christian freedoms are under threat in this country, in education, in healthcare, in the workplace more generally, in restrictions on free speech and in looming threat on conversion therapy. There have been very significant victories along the way, but everybody should be fully aware that we now live in a culture where Christians can lose their jobs for expressing their Christian beliefs. Christian Concern will support and help any Christian who has his or her freedoms impinged as a result of their Christian faith, and we have great, had great success in doing so. We will fight. We will fight every case. The lesson learned is this. Freedoms not fought for are freedoms forfeited. So we fight on and we covet your prayers and your support. I hope you've been given one of these packs. If you're not already on our email list, um, free emails which we send through every week to update you on news about these kind of things, please do sign up to that and get uh, behind the battle that there is in this country for Christian freedoms. I'll end there. Thank you very much.